0: Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, here in the CSIS studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff. Greetings. So we've got a uh, double-barreled episode for you. Um, In uh, the first barrel, we're going to answer some mailbag questions. And in the second- It's more of a
1: bag than a barrel.
0: It's a bag. Okay, so in the second bag, we have a terrific conversation with um, Michael Kimmage, a professor of history at Catholic University, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. I think first, let's uh, let's answer let's answer the mail. Um, yeah, we haven't done that in a while. We haven't done that in entirely too long. Our first question comes from Ayushman who writes, I'd appreciate a podcast covering Russia's relations with India. The Russian-Indian relationship was quite close in the early 2000s, but they're increasingly growing distant due to, among others, friction, delays in defense and energy procurement from Russia, and India's growing closeness with the United States. I'd appreciate if you could also shed some light on the situation with the Aini Air Base in Tajikistan and the lease of two more Akula-class submarines. Thanks for that question, Ashmana. You're absolutely right. Uh, India and Russia were close actually well before 2000. Um, This is one of the things that Russia inherited from the Soviet Union was a a very good relationship uh, with India. Weapons sales, general... Alignment, if you can call uh, call it alignment, when India's whole uh, reason for being uh, close to Russia was in fa- the Soviet Union was in fact non-alignment.
1: Yes, well, the joke in the United States was India was non-aligned against us.
0: Right. Well, and it was. Now, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Russia wasn't really particularly trying to compete with the United States in, in Southern Asia, but being able to keep selling Russian weapons to India was a pretty good motivator to keep the relationship going. And indeed, India overtook China as Russia's top buyer. And today, the um, over two thirds of Russia's arm imports, like uh, the leases of the Akula class uh, submarines, come from Russia. Uh, so it's uh, it's a strong relationship in that sense. Um, as you point out, outside of defense, there's not a lot of there there, and there was during the Cold War. So well before well before 2000, they've tried to boost ties. They've looked at ways to do to do this through the BRICS format, through other things, but haven't been very successful.
1: Yeah, and that's in part because they have different priorities around a number of issues. You know, Aushman mentioned in the mail question that India is grown closer to the United States. Uh, And of course, this is not specifically about balancing Russia. uh, But given the difficulty that Russia has had in its relations with the US, of course, that does create a certain amount of friction. Um, At the same time, Russia has started cultivating uh, through weapon sales and and other ways, uh, Pakistan, which is a country that India has a difficult relationship with, not to mention China.
0: Though everyone's balancing that yes. for the time being.
1: So if what existed during the Cold War was this kind of close Russian-India non-alignment alignment. Today you have a much more multipolar environment in this part of the world and it means that everybody is balancing and hedging against one another and there are no special relationships except maybe that between uh, China and Pakistan.
0: In some ways India is more non-aligned than it ever was before.
1: Yeah. Um, and as far as the Aini airbase goes there was some discussion around uh, India getting presence at this airbase a couple of years ago, that uh, after spending a lot of money to help renovate the airbase, which ended up coming to nothing, in part it seems based on you know what we hear, not you know having access to anything classified, because of Russian opposition to uh, having another country have a, a security or military presence in Central Asia.
0: That was certainly the uh, the gossip about it at the time. So th- thanks for that great question. Um, Next question comes from Catherine Kamhangwang, who writes, I was catching up on my podcast listening and was delighted to hear a little discussion of Georgia in the December 19th foreign fighters episode, specifically the mention of al-Shashani and other Chechen fighters that have come from Georgia. All I ever see with regards to radicalism in Georgia is related to Chechens and the Pankisi Gorge, um, though, despite the substantial Georgian Muslim populations in nigeria and Azeri populations in other regions, do you know why these groups seem to be less radicalized than the Chechen population? So it's always a terrific question to ask why some people choose violent extremism and others don't. In fact, um, there have been fighters from Georgia and Syria coming from all around Georgia, so not just the Pankisi, not just Chechens. So I'm not sure that there actually is data that suggests that Chechens from Georgia or uh, ethnic Chechens from Georgia are particularly prone to this compared to others. Others have gone. I think it is worth asking what factors make uh, communities more willing to turn a blind eye to young people uh, choosing to uh, to go fight abroad. I think it's an interesting question to ask what sorts of ideals and ideologies permeate um, into different societies and to different groups, and by what means. Uh, is it the internet? Are they meeting people? Did somebody study somewhere, pick up some ideas and come back? All of that. And I think Georgia is, um, it, you know, it may not be as... Um, as well known for this sort of thing as the North Caucasus, but it certainly has had its share of these problems.
1: Yeah, and I would just add that part of the reason there's been more focus on the on the ethnic Chechens in Georgia, the so-called Kists um, and the Pankisi Gorge, is because of the geographic proximity to the North Caucasus. Um, the concern going back to really the first Chechen war was that the Pankisi Gorge um, as a fairly remote area that has access to the Russian border in the North Caucasus was serving as a, a throughput uh, route for, for fighters and, and radicals coming through. And given the, the ethnic communities of, of Chechens living on both sides of the Russo-Georgian border, it's not surprising that extremism, weapons, other kinds Kinds of bad things um, would filter across to that community in a way that maybe wouldn't happen in other parts of the Georgian Muslim community that don't have that same direct connection to the North Caucasus. Um, Because Catherine also mentioned the Azeri population in Georgia, it's also worth pointing out that most Azeris are Shiites. So uh, would be less prone, obviously, to um, to joining a Sunni militia. Yeah, to be uh, caught up in in a Sunni radical movement.
0: But that doesn't mean that violent radicalism isn't a possibility, just as violent radicalism is also possible for Christians and for people of no particular religion, but political views that drives them uh, to violent radical uh, behavior.
1: Yes, everybody has their radicals.
0: Do you want to take the next one,
1: Jeff? Sure. Uh, The next question comes from Christopher Klimovitz in Albania. And Christopher asks, with the continued questions regarding the Trump administration's desire for a border wall and or increased security, could you talk more about Russian border security? I'm especially interested in Tsarist Soviet and contemporary Russian state border security. Well, Christopher, this is a really interesting question um, because Russia is a – former empire. And one of the things that we know about um, empires is that they often have very fluid borders um, because the territory which they physically occupy – tends to shift and change, and populations um, are incorporated in various ways uh, on one or other side of a, of a frontier. During the Soviet period, there was much more of an effort to uh, impose border security, particularly uh, to prevent people from leaving the country, and there were some fairly uh, notorious episodes of, of trying to block uh, outward migration. But in other cases, uh, the Soviet Union actually welcomed, uh, opened its borders, welcomed migrants from other uh, places. There was a big movement of uh, ethnic Kazakhs, for example, uh, from northern China during the Great Leap Forward that the Soviet Union welcomed in as part of a ploy to strengthen its influence among the the Kazakh and Muslim communities in northern China in what is in Xinjiang. Today, Russia's approach to borders is still comparatively open. Uh, There's no restriction per se on on Russians leaving, uh, which during the Soviet period there was. You needed an exit visa. And at least some of the borders, particularly those uh, with Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Kazakhstan, are quite open uh, and people move back and forth across these borders relatively easily. And so you have large migrant communities of Ukrainians, uh, Kazakhs to a lesser degree, um, and other people from the former Soviet Union. Now, the borders that the so- that Russia is really concerned about are the external borders of the former Soviet Union. And here you see uh, a big push by the Russian government to secure the borders between Turkmenistan and Afghanistan, uh, Tajikistan and Afghanistan, to kind of have a zone of security around Russia's borders and keep some of these external threats that it perceives further away.
0: So the one thing I would add to that is um, – as Jeff said, the border with Ukraine is actually fairly easy to cross for most people, right? If you're on, you can take a train, you can drive across, there's a border check, as long as your paperwork's in order, you're going to go through. Now, what's worth discussing, though, is in the areas of Ukraine that are occupied by Russian-backed separatists, uh, on there and then there, you have two, two questions about this. One is a very free flow of people from the Russian side of the border into that that region, including to fight. And concerns, or Russia should be a little bit more concerned, perhaps, about some of those people coming back with weapons and so forth. And then, of course, there's the question of Ukraine's ability to control that border on its side. And the border checks that both Ukrainian authorities and separatist people with guns have placed on the the line of contact areas where, you know, the, the line where uh, separatist control hits Ukrainian government control, where often you have people waiting in line for hours and hours in both directions trying to cross. All right. And one last question to make up for not answering questions for so long. Um, this one comes from Stephen Connor, who noted that uh, during a conversation with Ksenia Sobchuk, she expressed her opinion that the greatness of Russia lies not in its military, but its culture. And he asks whether Russia has missed the proverbial trick in not trying to use her culture to project soft power. Could the mostly negative energy expended in cultural exports she has focused on been better used in a positive way? And he asked if this this leads to a few other questions about how exportable Russian culture is. Is classical Russian culture exportable, whether it would sit comfortably with the current or previous post-Soviet regimes? So in order to answer that question, but really not, we we already (laughs) had this planned, but I think our conversation with Michael Kimmage does a pretty good job of both asking and answering the question of how Russian culture and Russian literature can be consumed, can be understood in the United States and elsewhere to provide a better understanding of Russia, not necessarily promoting Russia, but certainly making making Russia more accessible. Michael is a professor at the Department of History Catholic University, and he covers a lot of things, U.S.-Russia relations, Cold War history, American diplomatic and intellectual history. From 2014 to 2016, Michael served on the Secretary's uh, policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, uh, where he not surprisingly held the Russia and Ukraine portfolio. Now, so Michael's not um, a lit professor. He's a history professor, but he uses literature in his courses, and he relies on literature and culture and film to understand Russia. And it was a treat to bring him into the studio to talk to him about how he thinks that works, and how he incorporates it into his own teaching and his own thinking. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, let's talk about Russian literature. And you teach courses mostly on history, but you use literature in part uh, as a as a tool. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what sorts of literature you think inform Russian history?
2: I think that uh, when students are given the option of sort of free choices to read something on taxation, to read something on... Uh, policy or to read literature, they're very often drawn to the literature. So there's a <laughs> popular shock. element to, mm-hmm. uh, to including literature on syllabi, but I think for the study of history, it's unavoidable. And for Russian history, uh, in particular, the the roles that have been ascribed to Russian literature are different, say, from American history. It carries more weight in the Russian tradition, uh, and to avoid it is a uh, is a bigger risk. So it's, I think, a necessary component. Uh, but it's also quite a delightful one, the quality of Russian literature being so high, you have uh, an embarrassment of riches to choose from. But in addition to that, I would say that uh, the pleasures are perhaps paramount, but the degree of insight that you get from Russian literature is unparalleled. The vividness of it, uh, the scope, the ways in which the literature takes on the big themes, the big questions, uh, a bit of a stereotype, but also a truth about Russian, uh, Russian literature that uh, it offers almost everything that you need for the historical imagination.
0: Do you use other popular culture uh, tools, television, films?
2: The virtue of uh, film not having copyrights is that there's a huge amount of cinema available from the Soviet period, uh, and students tend to love it. It has a kind of exoticism to it uh, that students uh, immediately latch on to. So cinema is, of course, good. I think music would be nice to bring further forward. Uh, I think for Russians themselves, music plays a big role uh, in their culture, but... um,
0: Lyrics present a bit of a problem if the students don't speak (laughs) Russian. (laughs)
2: Lyrics and language present a problem, certainly, yes. You can
0: subtitle the film. It's a little harder. You pass out the lyric sheet and say, follow along with the song. That doesn't go as well.
2: That's very true. And the whole context for, say, the great Russian bards who are interesting, not just cultural figures, but often political figures, is very difficult for the American undergraduate to absorb. So literature and cinema tend to have the most accessible qualities. And probably the other thing that gets neglected is the graphic arts, mm-hmm. uh, which are also quite rich, um, but for whatever reason, tend not to get included. Although I think Soviet posters would be a very natural thing to, oh, to look yeah. at for any student of the society.
0: Those are fantastic. So what, uh, what period of history does your next course cover and what books do you assign for it in, in the literary realm?
2: Our next course in the fall will be Russian history from 1900 to 2000, so... That covers uh, a lot. Sort of the Soviet period is, of course, the uh, the biggest element, but not the uh, not the only one. Uh, and it will be Solzhenitsyn's one, Light, one Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, in part because it's a very short uh, work, uh, but also because uh, uh, nothing quite immerses, I think, students in the in the in the realities of the Gulag, on the one hand, but also in the nature of sort of post World War II Soviet culture, which is fragmenting in interesting ways and yielding to certain oppositional voices, of which Solzhenitsyn was, of course, one. So that's a natural fit, and it's an easy work to teach. And in my experience, students really uh, find it an extraordinary mm-hmm. piece of uh, of literature. And I think beyond that. Um, there will be probably a few excerpts here and there of uh, poetry from the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, and that might actually be it, despite my uh, overt commitment to literature that okay. may be it on the syllabus. So
0: Akhmatova. And... Correct,
2: yeah. And and these voices, uh, and Akhmatova is useful because she spans the pre-revolutionary and the post-revolutionary period. She really encompasses mm-hmm. so much, and is such an extraordinary poetic voice that Mm-hmm. Uh, she has to be on there as well.
0: Are you happy with the translations uh, you have of these folks? I mean, we've had uh we've had conversations about Russian translation on the podcast before. Um so I'm curious when you're assigning whether you're uh you're ever frustrated with with what you're finding. I'm
2: happy with the translations certainly for uh the history class that I teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I have too low an opinion of historians, but they're sort of good enough for what the historians okay. Need. I also teach a humanities course in which we spend three weeks doing the Brothers Karamazov. And there I use the Constance Garnett mm-hmm. translation, which starts to feel a little bit counterintuitive these days. There's sort of pressure to use more modern translations. But the the flow of it is good, and it tends to stick quite close to the literal meaning of the of the words. Uh, and I'll sort of stand by it. Uh, uh, it's cyclical, I think, these patterns right. in translation. Right. are sort of old-fashioned, but maybe it's going to be... Uh, new fashion at some point.
0: So if you were teaching a course on modern Russian history, um, let's say the 60s and 70s, what's the literature of that period that uh, you think explains the Soviet Union of that time best?
2: Well, this maybe goes to the side of your question, but Vasily Grossman's novel Life and Fate Mm. uh, is criminally unknown in the United States uh, and is... Not quite of the stature of War and Peace, but it's not that far away, either. And it's an all-encompassing book in the sense that you get the military conflict between the Soviet Union uh, and Nazi Germany in a very unstandard telling of it in the uh, in the Soviet context. But you also get reflections on the Holocaust uh, in uh, in a Soviet context and on science and Stalinism and uh, the Great Terror. Uh, And also the sort of fabric and texture of Soviet life, Mm -hmm. some of it non-great historical event Uh uh, oriented, but uh, of a uh, a more modest kind. uh, And uh, that, to me, seems a very valuable book to promote. Solzhenitsyn's books are, you know, Gulag Archipelago is not quite literature, uh, are in a sense a little bit less necessary to promote because students tend to come to those books, students who have Mm -hmm. an interest uh, and there are those out there promoting them. So I think Grossman is unduly neglected, and he really needs academics to to push for okay. his uh, to push to push him toward American readers.
0: And what do you think, or what have you seen, uh, surprise your students the most when they read Russian literature? Are there things that they didn't expect to see? Um, do they come to you and say, "Wow, this didn't occur to me"? I think for
2: American students now. There's almost nothing more exotic than the Soviet Union. Uh, in, Possibly
0: in... for Russian students now, too. <laughs> <laughs> in many
2: of its aspects. So the Middle Ages are somehow more uh, knowable, more they make more sense, they're more palpable uh, than the Soviet Union. Uh, and this isn't quite a point about literature, but the command economy and the whole the theoretical functioning of the Soviet Union economically and the actual functioning of it is astonishing to students and intriguing and... Uh, uh they take to it quite strongly as a topic because it seems to be coming to them from uh from the moon. Uh, you know, I think that the Cold War geopolitical stuff tends to be best known, uh, and students are aware of that, certainly Second World War and Cuban Missile Crisis and Reagan and Gorbachev, and all of this is is familiar and that part of it is not uh is not exotic, but popular culture is completely exotic. Uh the assumption that that popular culture would be drab or non-existent uh, and yet there's really so much of it. Uh, so whether it's uh, film or especially animated films that's one of the great pleasures <laughs> is to acquaint American students with the marvelous animated films uh, of the Soviet Union really some of the most enduring series uh, uh, ever made in that genre. The the Wolf and the Rabbit uh, are you know, sort of global protagonists but again uh, entirely unknown in this uh, in this country so the the playfulness they're remarkably
0: similar to Tom and Jerry
2: they are but they're better uh, uh, <laughs> the scenario the music is certainly much better the scenarios are, are are a bit sharper and more interesting and the ideological element of it is at least from today's mm. vantage point a sort of amusing or maybe it's there in Tom and Jerry too but the <laughs> capitalist nature of the wolf and the socialist nature of the rabbit uh, is is wonderful in part because the wolf is really charismatic uh, and so he sort of undercut some of the messages that he's supposed to be uh, supposed to be sending. And I'm just I, I can't see that kind of richness in Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Tom and Jerry. <laughs> so do students <laughs>
0: respond to that?
2: They do. Uh, no, they very much do. Uh, and there's this element of surprise. What they didn't think was there uh, is there. Um, and one thing that American students have a hard time imagining, and I think this extends beyond students, maybe to the larger society and even to the policy community, is that there's everyday normal life both in Russia and in the Soviet Union. So yes, of course, elements of it were uh, pathological, and there's totalitarianism and authoritarianism and and the gulag and all of that, never to be forgotten, to be sure. Uh, But there was also apartment life, uh, and there were marriages, and there were funerals, and there was uh, clothing, and there was youth culture, uh, and there was the culture of the cities and how people socialized with one another. And that tends to be uh, completely invisible. And I think it's in part the price that we pay for the legacy of the Cold War in this country. When you conduct a conflict of that kind, you really know your antagonist as antagonist. Uh, and as normal human being, uh, Soviet normalcy or Russian mm-hmm. normalcy is, uh, is one of the things that you really have mm-hmm. to teach American students.
0: Who do you think captured Soviet normalcy best of the writers that you read or sign? I mean, obviously, if you assign them, you read them, but...
2: I think the the writers don't do a great job of it. I think many of the greatest Soviet writers ended up being critics of the Soviet Union, uh, for usually for noble and uh, mm-hmm. and good reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think films, I think film uh, uh, the ironi- irony of of fate, mm-hmm. uh, being a very very popular uh, Soviet film okay. which people continue to watch. Uh, I don't think I've taught it, but I should teach it because. These sort of comedies... Sort
0: Can you of... describe it, just for in case audience members have not had the exciting opportunity to...
2: Sure, it's a story of a man who um, gets drunk and sort of uh, ends up in a travel scenario in the wrong apartment, which looks exactly like the apartment he's uh, seeking out, and from that is sort of a ca- cascading series of uh, ironies and, uh, and and comic situations. And the film has a real charm. uh, And And it's
0: a romantic comedy. And it's a
2: romantic comedy, exactly. So it's not a romantic comedy in the Hollywood vein, to be sure. uh, But the very charm of it and the way the charm emanates from a kind of Soviet normalcy, again, Soviet daily life, uh, is, is something that American students should be seeking out. And if they don't seek it out, they should be Mm. <laughs> compelled to, That's compelled sure. to confront that. You know, not another book on the Cold War. Mm-hmm. One thing like that would yeah. be very useful. So
0: I think early Ludmila Petrushevska's uh, stories are mm. a good way of looking at the positive and negative of Soviet mm. life. If if you want more things to assign. and they're short stories, so they're. And later Petrushevska, I think we had a conversation on the podcast about her with uh, Keith Gessen, who's mm. translated her. And you know what's interesting is that her themes don't change when the Soviet <laughs> Union collapses, right? That, you know, you could have read her back then as critiquing Soviet culture yeah. and Soviet life, but the same problems are still there. She keeps writing into the 90s and the aughts. People are still sometimes awful to each other in their personal lives. Go figure. And <laughs> I think that that's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting way to look at it. I want to ask you who takes your classes? What sorts of students are drawn to... Uh, Russian area studies these days?
2: Well, I should emphasize that I teach at a university that doesn't have much Russian studies. So nobody would attend Catholic university for the sake of studying Russia because the offerings are are modest. And yet when we do offer classes on Russian politics or Russian history, they're oversubscribed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a massive uh, interest. And in, so uh, it's not very formal on the part of the students, and it doesn't contribute that directly to their majors, whatever they are, usually history or uh, or politics, and I think that the most superficial answer would be that they want to figure out what's going on in the headlines, so mm-hmm. Russia's in the news everywhere, lots of conflict, lots of drama seems only to be intensifying, and students very understandably want to gain more understanding, sort of gain more insight into that. The other thing I think is uh an awareness that historically speaking for the United States, the Soviet Union is a very important country. there's the second world War chapter of that, there's the Cold War chapter of that, so even to understand their own country, to have an awareness of the Soviet past and through that of the uh, of the Russian past is is valuable. And then there's a smaller category of students that are th- sort of the Russophiles mm-hmm. who have read Dostoevsky. He seems to be the gateway uh, novelist for an Still, interest in Russia, wow. you know, Crime and Punishment, or uh, maybe Brothers Karamazov. But they've read a Dostoevsky novel and it's left them intrigued with Russia as such, not just with Dostoevsky or the novel, but with the country, uh, at large, what we don't have are students who are drawn by the language, and I <laughs> think that you get that at other n- universities, but uh, but not at ours. But there's some, I don't know, sort of intriguing mystical power that uh, Russia has beyond its borders as um, enigmatic or, uh, or different uh, that can cut both ways in terms of uh, sort of analytical or academic approach. But the sheer difference, I think, draws in students for some mysterious reason.
0: And are they uh, russophiles or russophobes, or is it hard to categorize them early on?
2: In my experience, the students who go into classes on Russia tend much more toward russophilia. Mm -hmm. I think the russophobes don't take the class. Don't take the classes. (laughs) They steer clear of that, and they study the history of Italy or the history of China or something. They don't want another Uh, (laughs) enemy. Something else that uh, doesn't activate their their phobias, but uh, there can be very simplistic notions of of Russian-ness and of Russia. And even worse than that is just the the assumption of inferiority on the part of Russia. It's an inferior economy. It's an inferior Mm -hmm. political culture because it tends to circle back toward authoritarianism, whether in the imperial period or the Soviet period or the post-Soviet period. Uh, It's a reductive attitude on the part of students, which from an instructor's vantage point, is kind of ideal because that's the thing that you try to overturn in the class, but it's pretty evident among a lot of American students. It's not just a country that's different or other, but there is almost always an assumed inferiority.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that's changed over time? Are people more prone to assuming Russia to be inferior now than they were 10, 15 years ago, or when you were in school?
2: Yes, I think it's uh, either come full circle or it's changed or maybe you could put it this way that before it was sort of a benign inferiority let's say under boris yeltsin uh and as putin has consolidated power and as conflicts have arisen between the u.s and russia it's maybe more a malignant inferiority and that i think would be the dominant mood at least among the students who vote democrat uh in in 2018 (laughs) republican oriented students might be a little bit uh more skeptical of that framework but Mm -hmm. uh This malignant inferiority is now more entrenched and is sort of deepening by the month, I would suspect.
0: So recently, a... um... Uh, on April Fool's Day, War on the Rocks published a satirical article on that you know was kind of all the cliches in one on foreign policy, and one of the one of the things in there was you cannot understand Russia without reading Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Bunin. Da, 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 da. It was all men, incidentally. Uh, but uh, I do want to ask you: you can't understand Russia without reading what literature?
2: Well, I, I, I'm happy to embrace the the parody. I mean, mm-hmm. I think all of those names. Uh, uh, should be promoted as uh, mm-hmm. as sources of uh, as sources of insight, but uh, uh, you know you might want to go a little bit backwards in time. I mean, I didn't have great joy reading Radishchev as an undergraduate uh, or as a graduate student. But, but... others
0: should also be punished. <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. The sort of uh, 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 the second tier literary qualities of it are 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 compensated by the insight it gives into a particular historical moment. I mean, I think Turgenev. Uh, should be added to the list, and uh, uh, clearly Solzhenitsyn has to be there for the uh, for the Soviet period, and then I believe it's the Silver Age of of, of poetry is uh, is equally crucial, if a little bit less political in nature, or overtly political, Shotaev and Akhmatova, and that uh, flowering of the poetic imagination. And I think Pasternak is an easy sell uh, as well. I mean Pasternak belongs in two categories. He's a writer of the Cold War. Uh, because of his biography, because of what happened to him during the Cold War, but he's also clearly an important, uh, an important novelistic figure. I mean, the list is is kind of endless. So okay. you know, if you have to generalize for an audience that's politically interested, which I assume mm-hmm. War on the Rocks would uh, would be speaking to, then I think it has to be War and Peace. Yeah, that's the... Really?
0: Do you know, I've never read War and Peace all the way through, <laughs> so I clearly don't understand Russia. <laughs> yeah, or you evade the parody. You know, I tried several times, um, and my father once admitted to me that he only made it through War and Peace when he was laid up with appendicitis, like after his appendix, appendicitis surgery, he couldn't, <laughs> couldn't move for a long period of time, he finally made it through. Why, sh- why should they read the fiction? I mean, you talked about this a little bit with the students, but some of it is that it's an easier access point. Um, Do you you need to understand the literature to understand Russia, really? I think one
2: can make two very broad points in this regard. I think that there's a way in which the literature provides genuine political insight. So that's one point, and I'll elaborate on that in a moment. The other is uh, that because of the Cold War, because of this long, long legacy of conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, there is a box into which Russia, and before that the Soviet Union was put, uh, and that box is economic, geopolitical, uh, political, and literature is a key to unlock that box and get out into other areas of Russian life and Russian culture, which are certainly relevant, uh, and which any comprehensive, complete feeling for the country would have to uh, would have to incorporate. So when it comes to politics, I mean, I think that the literature helps to understand uh, the very complicated relationship that Russia has with the West. Uh, and it will not really support any of the cliched answers Mm -hmm. that we can give. I mean, Russia is, of course, a country embedded in many European cultural forms and very close to Europe. There's no uh, way in which Tolstoy or Dostoevsky could have functioned as writers without Rousseau and Dickens and uh, a huge list of Western European cultural uh, figures, and yet the literature also does articulate a very important set of differences from the West. With Dostoevsky, that can shade into... Uh, stereotypes on the other side uh, of Western coldness and rationality mm-hmm. uh, and, and and all of that. But uh, with Tolstoy, who's maybe more Western in feeling as a writer, the great epic that he writes is the epic of the Napoleonic invasions. And that's not just a story of invasion. It's also a story of Russia coming together uh, as a nation. That's the larger trajectory of, uh, of war and peace. So to understand how those pieces come together in the political culture of connection to the West, uh, hostility with the West, and Russian nation-building, in part together with, but often in opposition to the West, uh, the literature is a marvelous guide. But I think also, this is the uh, the second point, uh, there's nothing that humanizes quite like mm-hmm. literature. And so the danger with any kind of geopolitical conflict, it's not just U.S. and Russia, it's all of these conflicts, is that you start to reduce your opposite number. Uh, and that's... Uh, you know, morally a sort of questionable choice, but it's also intellectually uh, a very questionable choice. When you have conflict, maybe it's the opposite that you need is the largest possible vision uh, of those on the other side. And again, that's what literature can supply
0: so I'm wondering what Russians need to read to humanize Americans.
2: They have their own canon, which is really not the American mm-hmm. canon of American literature. So you'll never meet as many fans of Jack London in my experience uh, as you do in Russia. I don't I hardly know an American who's read Jack London. Uh, at least I had in, to read him in school. In my recollection, but uh, but in Russia, he really has the status of a, uh, of a culture hero. Uh, I think that uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Hemingway, uh, even Norman Mailer, in my experience, uh, are mm-hmm. sort of prominent figures.
0: But what uh, should they read instead? What they
2: should read, uh, you know, I think Melville would be uh, a kind of easy recommendation. I think that they should take a break from Hemingway and read maybe some more F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, that... Um, you know, Scott Fitzgerald is closer uh, to a lot of American realities than, than Hemingway is. Hemingway is a great writer of uh, emigre American life and mm-hmm. a great stylist. But The Great Gatsby and uh, the short story is really capture uh, something that's uh, very important about the class structure in America. And
0: Soviets always like theater Dreiser. Yeah,
2: know. that's true. And Dreiser was also very much, uh, very much promoted. And you can't go wrong by reading Dreiser. He really does. Uh, capture something important about the late 19th century, but uh, there too he's sort of uh, a neglected American writer. I wonder what Henry James would look like through uh, through Russian eyes. I think that there's a tendency in Russia to look at Americans as a bit uncouth, uncultured, um, you know, sort of a cowboyish image of the U.S., and Henry James would, would shatter that. Uh, that might be an interesting venture. And then more recently, there's such an extraordinary efflorescence of American literature written by the Children of immigrants, or people who are themselves uh, immigrants, and you know what theme is more classically American than uh, immigration. And so to get that sense of you know, the ethnic element in American life and the importance, the the sheer importance of immigration, literature is a uh, is a good record of that. And I wonder how much that's been assimilated. So they should
0: read Gary Steingart and Anya Ulyanich and Olga Groshen. And
2: Steingart always has to be recommended, but you can uh, you know you can sort of. Uh, take it back to Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and, uh, you know, Mary Anton and uh, Henry Roth and, you know, really the the vast literature of immigration that's recent and, uh, and 100 years old as well. Uh, and it presents a very interesting America, and I wonder if it's one that's really in a, in accord with Russian mm-hmm. stereotypes and cliches.
0: And it's also from the perspective of an outsider, which it's people describing America yes. as, as they assimilate into it, uh, which might be a little more accessible for somebody coming from outside.
2: Of course, you have the very fraught figure of Vladimir Nabokov, mm-hmm. who is sort of claimed on both sides right. of the uh, Atlantic. He's understood to be a, a American literary superstar. He would describe himself often as such, with Lolita in those books, but of course he's uh, a resident of Saint Petersburg in his early years and writes—I don't know—eight, nine, ten novels in Russian. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly if the Russians claim him or if all Russians claim him, but uh, he's a very interesting in-between figure. And maybe another, mm-hmm. or certainly another bridge figure is—is uh, is Joseph Brodsky, mm-hmm. uh, was another Saint Petersburger who ended up in the United States. And
0: so, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is when you think. About uh, the American experience, the immigrant experience, and the immigrant experience from Europe might be accessible to Russians. What about uh, forced migration? uh, The African American literary uh, canon. I was also thinking works by Latin American immigrants to Mm -hmm. the United States, which provide you know you kind of get you get a glimpse of how that how people from those cultures assimilated. Are there writers? That you would recommend specifically to Russians from from those universes?
2: I, I think absolutely. The contested nature of uh, of American culture is a good thing to convey. It's a it's, it's a very unstatic culture, not even literary culture, but just uh, but just culture. And uh, the immigrant narrative is uh, is integral to that. And you know, nothing is harder to understand about American life than than race uh, in all of its uh, in all of its manifestations. So. You know, it's not quite literature, but uh, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Mm. I wonder how recently that's been translated into Russian, how uh, available it is. I wouldn't be surprised if it were translated into Russian. Of course, W. B. Du Bois played a big role at a certain time in Mm -hmm. Russian Soviet culture, Uh, so maybe through him, uh, there's that kind of text available, or 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 maybe not. And if not, then it should be uh, promoted. I think Native Son uh would be an intriguing book to read from a Russian perspective and I think probably was translated and promoted in the uh in the Soviet Union Invisible Man I'm sure mm-hmm. quite a bit uh less so but if you're speaking about historical reckonings it's uh, Tony Morrison's Beloved is uh, a book that has the virtue of being relatively uh short it's a it's a it's a hard book to read it's a demanding book to read
0: I imagine it's a difficult book to translate an well an
2: extremely difficult book to translate for uh, reasons of its prose style. And I think also the history that it assumes uh, the reader knows may not be uh, at the fingertips of most Russian Though it's not readers. wasn't at
0: the fingertips of most white American readers either. I mean, I think that's one of the useful things about it. To be sure. So this, this kind of brings us to this question of literature as politics, right? And how do you think that's historically been different in Russian literature uh, from, say, American literature, since th- those are the two we're talking about? I think
2: American literature, and I I don't say this with pride, I think that it's just been less consequential for the society at large. You can speak of a book like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which was transformative, the the little book that started this big war, as as Abraham Lincoln is reputed to have said. But that's among the very few examples that you can uh, come up with. Uh, There's a great deal to appreciate in American literature, and uh, it's always there as an available lens. Uh, into the country. But for Americans themselves, uh, I don't think that they live or die on the basis of uh, of their literary culture. And increasingly, I think people are moving away from the culture of the book uh, in this country, perhaps in Russia as well. Uh, and that is only acting further to diminish the sort of social impact of literature. I think Russia is really, in this respect, fundamentally different. Uh, and it's a difference that American readers or American observers of Russia should do their best to appreciate. There is this strong sense in America of Russia as an authoritarian culture and uh, and political culture, and there's ample evidence for that. But the literature is really a different story within that uh, within, within that other political story. Uh, Russia does not have a rich parliamentary tradition. Uh, it sort of began in 1905, and the Bolsheviks shut it down. And then uh, it's hard to argue that in 2018, the Duma is a you know, exceptionally important uh, organ of Russian, uh, of Russian politics, but that doesn't mean that Russian life or Russian culture lacks opposition or challenges to authority. And here you could go back to the saints' lives uh, of medieval Russian literature, which are uh, uh, an important insight into that. The prophetic nature of that, the social justice nature of that uh, is is pronounced. Then you have an 18th century uh, Russian literature that asks acute questions about uh, enlightened despotism, Uh, And in the 19th century, it's without end, the the literature of freedom in Russia, the literature of opposition, the literature of questioning, and beyond that, the role of the Russian writer. So Tolstoy is as mainstream a Russian writer as you get. He was an aristocrat. He was a wealthy man. Uh, He was an insider, uh, and yet he's excommunicated by the church, and he ends his life in this sort of destitute, uh, uh, in this destitute manner, a pacifist who's really... Uh, very much at odds with the political culture of the well, Russian it's empire self,
0: self-inflicted destitution <laughs> self-inflicted
2: destitution as 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 uh, as only tolstoy could inflict it to be sure but uh, uh, he also in...
0: inflicted on his family which were a little less enthusiastic
2: <laughs> right no and kind of zany uh, political and social movements that swirl around his estate and his uh, and his figure but i think the key point is that he's at the center of the culture but he's in so many ways critical uh, and in so many ways offers his readers the option of being critical or of being in a kind of opposition. Solzhenitsyn repeats that story later on. Pasternak doesn't repeat the story of overt opposition, perhaps, but it's certainly there in the in the story of how the Dr. Zhivago came to be, how it mm-hmm. came to be published, how he gets the Nobel Prize uh, for literature. So it's not, I think, wrong to describe Russian literature as almost the opposition party. <laughs> you, know, you don't have the opposition party in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, necessarily, Uh, But you do have it on the printed page, uh, and uh, in that sense, if we're thinking still about American readers or American observers, uh, you want to factor that into your notion of Russian authoritarianism. What is the opposition party, and why is it that literature has so successfully played that role for the last Two or three mm. centuries.
0: So the Czechs, after they got rid of communism, elected a playwright. Hmm. Uh, the Russians haven't done that. So if literature is the opposition, it's uh, it's not an opposition that ever gets well, a chance at power.
2: I think you're forgetting the figure of Surkov, who apparently is oh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, a novelist, sort of uh, un, under pseudonyms and uh, uh, sort of celebrates his uh, that's his, that's true. His, I'm his not literary having... skill, but, uh, though
0: uh, I'm not sure I would call him opposition. Yes, um, and so. I wouldn't call him
2: elected either. So yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so do you have examples of prominent uh, American thinkers, policymakers who studied Russia who were uh, were well-versed uh, in the literature and uh, to make the argument that you two can, uh, if, if you do this, you'll be as good as they are?
2: <laughs> well, the easiest example is is George Kennan, who had the good fortune to study Russian language in the 1920s when he finished college and he studied in Riga and absorbed uh, a sort of post-imperial russian culture there uh, and spent his life um, happily obsessed with russian literature he had this dream of writing a biography of uh, of chekhov which he never uh, which he never realized and he also sponsored something called the chekhov publishing house i believe which was uh, a translation point for russian literature to make it more accessible to americans but you know kennan really used his knowledge of russian literature for his policy work that's the that's the interesting point, and apparently, this is recollected in the John Gaddis biography of Kennan, he would play out scenes from Dostoevsky in the American embassy in Moscow in the 1930s to explain the nuances of Stalin's uh, purges. So he would begin with literature, but he would take whatever it was that he was gathering from the literature to uh, an assessment of, uh, of of high politics in the Soviet Union, uh, and that's uh, that's certainly an intriguing method of diplomatic right. analysis. I'm, I'm
0: I'm trying to think how you would apply Dostoevsky to Putin's Russia. I mean, there are ways, but I'm not sure there's anything I want to act out.
2: Yeah, I can't think of the exact uh, scenes, but I think that the easy point uh, to make in in this mm-hmm. regard are notions of pride, uh, humiliation, uh, and how they uh, function in relation to mm-hmm. hierarchies within Russia, but also hierarchies in international affairs. And I suspect that that's what Cannon was okay. onto with the Dostoevsky mm-hmm. g- connection in the 1930s. And I think that it wouldn't be difficult to apply some of those notions to Putin uh, in the present day and for the last 15 years. Pride is a, a very, very important uh, concept to him. And Dostoevsky is a writer about pride. So mm-hmm. we have those two parts.
0: So in, in this, at least be like canon read Chekhov and Dostoevsky.
2: Yes, I think that uh, And if, make better Russia policy. If, if War on the rock doesn't make too much fun of you for doing so. I think it's a good <laughs> uh, I think it's a good suggestion.
0: All right, Michael, thank you so much. This was a great discussion.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That's it for today. We've got links to Michael Kimmage's bio and work in the show notes. And we've also provided a bit more information about some of the books and films and cartoons we talked about.
1: And once again, uh, if you haven't done so already, please do consider subscribing to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can leave us a rating and a review as well. If you're one of those people who doesn't use iTunes, you can check us out uh, and subscribe on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Uh, Keep listening and keep spreading the word to your friends.
0: Finally, uh, we really had a good time answering these mailbag questions. Uh, We promise if we get a bunch more, we'll answer a bunch more. So send in your questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, at Olya Oliker, and at Dr. J.
0: Mankoff. Finally, big thanks to everybody who worked so hard to make this podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research assistant and program coordinator, Cyrus Newlin, our intern, Claire Hafner, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Bye.